0: Uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. We're studying this uh, amazing letter of Paul, and it's a letter that has the theme of hope. And there's a lot of confusion over what hope is, and so we're defining very carefully what hope is and what hope is not. The Christian's hope is not like the world's hope. The world's hope is an un certain wish that circumstances will change for the better. Sometimes there's absolutely no foundation or grounding to that wish at all. Sometimes people merely turn to hope as the power of positive thinking. At other times, they look to hope as if I just believe enough that things will be different, then things will be different. And I must say to you, I even say that, ha- see that happening sometimes in the church. I see people going up to people and say, well, I- I- it'll be better. And now, if they meant like one day in the New Jerusalem, things will be better, then I'm all for that. But the fact is, even in the church... People are just slapping a platitude on something and saying to somebody, it's going to get better. People, we don't know if it's going to get better circumstantially. That's cruel to say that. It's not helpful. So what is hope? If it's not that, which is what we actually often think it is, what is hope? Hope is a certain expectation of ultimate good. That's key there. A certain expectation not a wishful, a certain expectation of ultimate good based on biblical realities, based on who God is, what His Word says, what Christ has accomplished, what the Holy Spirit is doing, and then the hope to be ultimately revealed at the return of Jesus Christ. Now, see, that hope never changes. That doesn't change based on your circumstances. Our hope is a certain expectation of ultimate good based on the unchanging realities of who God is, what Christ has done, what God's Word promises, what the Spirit of God is doing And then the return of Christ. So as we look at this theme of hope, our specific focus this morning is a greater hope through divine initiative. That God is the one who pursues us and ultimately not us, him. C.S. Lewis, many of you know who he is. He was an apologist. He was a teacher of literature and English at Oxford and Cambridge. He's probably most known for his Chronicles of Narnia. He once called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. On October 18th, I want to get the date right, on October 18th, 1931, C.S. Lewis wrote a letter to his friends, one of whom was J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame. In that letter, he specifically recounts a walk that he and his friends who were Christians, he was not at the time, a walk that they took at three in the morning one night around the campus of Oxford. He explains his thankfulness that Tolkien and his friends took the time to explain to Lewis more deeply the sacrifice of Christ and the satisfaction of divine wrath through the cross. And then Lewis quotes a poem written by another British literary giant named Francis Thompson. And this poem is called The Hound of Heaven. And in this poem, Thompson talks about how he too, like Lewis, kept on running away from God, trying to hide from God, seeking to speed away from God. But then the poem changes focus as it gets itself off of Thompson and his fleeing God. And on to God and the divine initiative. And he says in the poem that the divine initiative that pursued me was, quote, an unhurried chase with unperturbed pace, a deliberate speed, and a majestic instancy or urgency. And then Lewis, in the letter to his friends, writes these words. I cannot give any advice on pursuing God, having never had that experience. It was the other way around. He, God, was the hunter, and I was the deer, always chasing me to lead my soul back home what Lewis expressed to Tolkien and his friends and what we just heard is the wonder of divine initiative that God is pursuing us in love and that is the ground of our hope so let's all stand out of reverence for God's word Follow along as we unpack this theme in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 to 10. This is God's Word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he longs for us to have our hope renewed every single moment of every single day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we've learned so far from 1 Thessalonians. We pray now that we would understand and embrace the wonder of divine initiative and be renewed in our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So the past several weeks, we've been going through verse by verse this, this first chapter And uh, this morning, we're going to look again at the wonder of the Trinity, the triune God working together to renew our hope. So the first thing we're going to look at is finding hope in the Father's electing love. Look again at verses 2 and 4. Notice that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are giving thanks to God. Why? Verse 4. For we know, because we know, the ground, the reason of giving thanks is because we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The Greek word is very clear. It means elect. Uh, It means to choose out, to pick out. So Paul writes here that the Father's love has chosen the Thessalonians and he expects the Thessalonians to, hearing this truth to be renewed in hope. And the Spirit of God recorded this truth, not just for the Thessalonians, but for us as well. There's something about understanding and embracing the electing love of God that will actually renew our hope. Well, to understand a little bit more of this, let's look at some other verses. In Ephesians 1, verse 4. Paul writes that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. In Romans 9, Paul talks about the twins that were in the womb. He said, Jacob, I loved. That before either of the children were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, they were told the younger The older will serve the younger. See, your view of grace will only be as radical as your view of sin. If sin merely makes us sick, then all grace is, is God giving us an aspirin and telling us to get up and get our act together. But if sin brings death, then what grace is, is radical resurrection And Paul says to the Thessalonians, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, he has chosen you. Not because you were good. Not because you're better. As a matter of fact, God's love for you doesn't even depend upon who you are. It depends entirely on who he is. God said the same exact thing to the Old Testament church, Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, Moses says by God's Spirit to the Israelites, Do not think it was because you were so great or powerful or wealthy or wise that I chose you. No, he says, God set his affection on you and chose you because he loved you. Now, where's the hope in that? Just here. You don't have to perform for God's love. God loved you from eternity past. He chose to set his love upon you before you were even born. And that is our hope. We are loved eternally and infinitely by God because of who he is. And we are secure in that love, and that is our In Ephesians 1, verse 5, Paul goes on and says, In love we were predestined to adoption as sons. The Father's electing love is revealed in the divine initiative to bring us into his family. If you know Christ, you've been adopted into God's family. And he cares for you. He guards you. He protects you. Not because you live up to being worthy of a family member. God adopts you, loves you, cares for you, protects you, fights for you because of who he is as a father. And simply because he has chosen to adopt you into his family. You see, there's absolutely no reason to lose hope when we know that we're loved like that. Now listen, please. I'm not saying life doesn't get hard. In fact, I hope I made clear earlier (laughs) that I'm actually saying life is hard and there's never a guarantee that it won't be hard. But our hope isn't in circumstances becoming more easy. Our hope is that we are loved by God. From eternity past, if we know Christ. Matter of fact, Paul goes on in Romans eight twenty nine and 30 and says, Those whom he foreknew, those whom he knew beforehand, those whom he chose before the foundations of the earth, those whom he foreknew, these he also predestined. And those he predestined, he called in time and in space. We eventually hear a call to Jesus Christ. And those he called, he justified. He he gives us a righteous standing before him. And those he justified, he glorified. God takes the initiative to love us, to redeem us, to call us, to justify us. And he also takes the initiative by his love to get us safely home where we will be changed forever. That's why Paul says... In verses 38 and 39 of Romans 8, that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor the present nor the future nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Folks, that is our hope, our hope as believers in Jesus Christ, is that we were loved from eternity past. We are loved in the present. We will be loved in the future and we'll be loved for all of eternity. There's a romantic fantasy movie. I'd say it's romantic fantasy because it's not one of today's romantic comedies. It's not a rom-com. It's, it's, it's one of the old-fashioned Romantic movies. It's called uh, Somewhere in Time. It, uh, it stars Christopher Reeve, uh, the original Superman, uh, not the TV Superman, but the movie Superman, and, uh, and Jane Seymour. Uh, Christopher Reeve uh, plays this this college playwright. He's just written his first play uh, to Great Accolades and they're having an after party and this elderly woman walks up and hands him a pocket watch, looks him in the eye and says, come back to me. That's weird. Nobody there knows who she is or what she means and Christopher Reeve just says, okay, thanks, and she leaves, and he moves on. Eight years later, he is a very successful playwright, now in Chicago, but he's just experienced heartbreak. And he's got writer's block on a new play. So he leaves Chicago and drives around Lake Michigan, goes up to, to Mackinac Island, which is right between the two peninsulas of Michigan. And he, he goes to the Grand Hotel. And while he's there, he's wandering around some of the rooms and, and uh, there's a history room and it's got all kinds of pictures in it. And his eyes are strangely drawn to an old picture of a very young and beautiful woman. He's captivated by her. Mysteriously, almost magically, He's entranced by her, and he actually falls in love with her. A picture. And then he realizes right after that, that 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 young woman is the old woman who eight years ago gave him the pocket watch and said, Come back to me. He, he's intrigued. He wants to find out all about her, does all this research, finds where she used to live, and there's a book in her room on time travel. He goes to an old professor who wrote the book. And I'm not going to get into the details, but he, he goes back in time, 68 years, and meets this woman who's an actress. She's starring in a play. And at intermission, uh, she's having a photo shoot, getting her picture taken. And Christopher Reed comes down during intermission, and he, he sees her sitting for the photo shoot. And just before the photographer takes the picture, Jane Seymour glances at Christopher Reeve. And this warm smile comes over her face. This glow of affection and snap. The photographer takes the picture. And we immediately notice, as the viewer, that that is the picture that Christopher Reeve saw in the Grand Hotel. Now, if you think it through, Christopher Reeve thought that he was seeking the woman. But the fact is, the woman took the initiative to meet Christopher Reeve. Not only that, but what Christopher Reeve fell in love with What he was drawn to ultimately is the look on her face of love for him before he was even born. You're here today and maybe you know Christ. I hope you do. At some point in time, you began to seek him. You trusted Christ you became a Christian. But if you would be able to go back in time, back before time, and you could see the Father's face, and you would see him glance at you, you would see that love of eternal affection and warmth. And you would realize that he loved you before you were even born. And what you may not understand is that the gospel presents your father in heaven, your creator as that God. And what you are drawn to is the love in his face that was for you before you were even born. And that is the source of our hope. If you know Christ, you always have been loved. You are loved now. And you always will be loved. And his love will carry you like a father carries a son or a daughter. Through every difficulty you will ever face. Until he carries you all the way into the new Jerusalem. Find hope in the Father's electing love. Secondly, five find hope in the Spirit's transforming power. Look at verse 5. Paul says, we know, brothers and sisters, he has chosen you. How? How does Paul know that? Well, he gives a bunch of evidences. In verse 5, because our gospel came to you in power, not merely in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. Paul knows the Thessalonians are truly converted because he saw the effects of the Holy Spirit on their lives. See, in this passage, Paul is making clear that conversion is not merely a human attempt to turn your life around. Conversion is not a human attempt to turn over a new leaf. Conversion is not swapping out a paradigm of life or behaviors through rational thinking. Although it includes embracing rational content, it is excuse me, so much more than that. No, conversion. Is an introduction to a brand new supernatural reality because of the divine intentionality of the Holy Spirit. See, as I said earlier, conversion is not us taking an aspirin and then trying really hard to live the Christian life. Conversion is pure, unadulterated resurrection of the dead. See, this is why it has to be the Father's electing love, because we're all dead. And when God chooses us, the Spirit affects resurrection, and it changes us forever. I must tell you, uh, Billy Graham was once asked, how many of Americans who profess faith in Christ do you think are converted? truly notice response was maybe 10 to 15% i agree i think the past 2 years has exposed that i ask people from time to time we're talking about a family member a spouse a friend well, do they know Jesus? And I'm always amazed at the hemming and hawing. Well, I mean, you know, they, they go to church sometimes. They, they say they believe in Jesus. Folks, c- can we get back to what the Bible teaches on the resurrection of the dead, the first resurrection that occurs in this life when a man or woman is born again. <laughs> there, there is no doubt. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. If, if you've been converted, you are literally not the same person you were when you were born and before you were converted. Something supernatural is taken. Matter of fact, listen to how God says, talks about this in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 36, 25 and following. I, God says, I will take the initiative. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll do that and it will happen. I will remove from you all of your idols. That's that's what Paul talks about in verse 9. I I know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God in Thessalonica, I know you're converted. Why? Because you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Anybody who's converted is transformed. Now, it takes time to grow. We do have patches of, of tough sledding. I'm not denying that. But what I am saying is, if you've been converted, you know it and other people know it. And we've got to get back to allow the power of grace to be the power of grace. This whole idea that there's people who trust Jesus as Savior because they want their fire insurance from hell, but they're not really sure they want to follow Christ as disciples. Folks, that's not possible. That's unbiblical. It's from the pit of hell. If the Spirit of God opens your eyes to see the warm affection on the face of the Father that loves you, you don't merely turn to Him just to be loved. You also turn to Him to be changed. And the Spirit of God does that. Then God says in Ezekiel 36, 25 and following, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a brand new spirit in you. I will take out your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and move you to walk in my statutes. That's a Christian. Someone who has been resurrected from the dead in this life. They're a brand new creation. All that was past, as far as what they love and what they desire. We still wrestle with those things. But as far as... Lordship. They're gone. Leo Tolstoy was a Russian author. I'm talking a lot about authors today. Uh, Tolstoy and and, uh, also Dostoevsky both came to Christ. Tolstoy is known for his epic uh, novel that takes a lifetime to read, uh, War and Peace. And listen to what Tolstoy said about his conversion. Five years ago, faith came to me. I believed in the person of Jesus, and all my life was suddenly changed. I ceased to desire that which I previously had desired, and on the other hand, I took to desiring what I had never desired before. That which formerly used to appear good in my eyes appeared evil, and that which used to appear evil appeared good. He didn't strive himself to that perspective. He was resurrected from the dead in this life. He was changed. The old heart was taken out. A brand new heart was put in. The spirit of the living God was given to him. And the spirit of God continued to transform him day by day. Are you converted? Now, some of you may be saying, (laughs) Whoa, you've just upset my whole assurance, Bob. (laughs) Where's your hope? Is your hope in your performance? See, if if I have my assurance shaken by by the words of a pastor like I've just delivered to you, you know what my first go-to is? (laughs) Oh, Christ, have mercy. If I start looking at myself... I am, I, my assurance is going to sink like a rock. But if I take seriously that, that if I've been converted, I've experienced resurrection, and I, I understand that my life is different. But if I get insecure, I just say, Oh, Christ, have mercy. And that's the cry of a Christian. And as you continue to cry that, power from on high is activated in your life and you begin to experience the resurrection life just like the Thessalonians. Look at, look at all the evidences. Uh, look at verse 5. Paul says, you know what kind of men we proved to be? Well, they were being persecuted, oppressed. They were experiencing hostility, And and Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they still kept preaching the word. And in verse 6, Paul says, And you guys became imitators of us and of the Lord. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus suffered. We suffered. And now you're suffering. But you're suffering because you're resurrected. You're suffering because you're loved of God, chosen by God, and His Spirit is transforming you. Also in verse 6, not only do you receive the word of most affliction, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit initiates the fruit in our lives. Notice, it's not the fruit of humanity. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It says, because of their resurrection, because of their regeneration, because of having a new heart, verse 7, you became an example to all the saints all throughout Greece. The word of the Lord sounded forth from you. See, not only a life change in desires, in ethics, and behaviors, but also in mission. We begin to love the mission of God when we're resurrected. We begin to love God's heart for mercy. We begin to love God's heart for justice. We begin to love God's heart for the nations and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And then, of course, the kicker in verse 9. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The Spirit's transforming power is resurrection and it leads to a renunciation of evil and an embracing of all that is good and beautiful and true. Please hear me. I am not saying any of us will ever come close to living this perfectly. But when we fail... Our response is, O Christ, have mercy. For I am not living as the new creation I am. And continue to transform me by your divine initiative. Find hope in the Father's electing love. Find hope in the Spirit's transforming power. And then thirdly, find hope in the Son's certain return. Look at verse 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Can I just say to those of us who are really, really suffering, I am so, so sorry. And we all face suffering from time to time, but maybe not like you are. And we as the church, we want to rally around you and, and be that 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 the arms of God that carry you as a, as a father carries a son or a daughter i I need you to hear that, and I also need all of us to hear this is not our home I think way too often in my life and in many Christians' lives, we've bought into the lie that this is supposed to feel like home. I mean, listen, there'll be glimpses of when it'll feel like home as it's a a tiny glance into what the new Jerusalem in some way will be like. But men and women, this is not our home. As a matter of fact, we're told quite clearly that we're aliens here. We're told quite clearly this is absolutely not our home. We are strangers here, we are refugees away from our homeland. We are exiles. So, why would we find our hope in seeking to have this place feel like home? No, ultimately, the hope of the Christian is the return of Christ. Ultimately, the hope of the Christian is that all that is wrong will one day be put right. But not in this life. Oh, we'll aim for it. We work toward it. But folks, things are not going to be put right in this life. That's what Paul's saying. These these people that are persecuting you, these people that are oppressing you, the suffering that you're undergoing... Paul doesn't grab their hand and pat it and say, here, 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 it'll get better. No, some of them were killed. No, ultimately, that's a lot better. Because they're with Jesus. No, Paul says, here's the key to hope. We wait patiently for Jesus. Who will take the initiative and come and bring us home? And then there'll be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more tears. And then hope will become sight. But in the meantime, Paul says, Who hopes for what they see? No one hopes for what they see. Hope isn't necessary when we see what we hope for. Now in this life, we have hope. In the new Jerusalem, we'll no longer need hope. Because everything that we've been promised as the beloved of God will be ours. The hound of heaven taking divine initiative to love us, to save us, to change us, and to enable us to wait patiently for his son Jesus, who saves us from the wrath that is coming. Jesus talked a lot about the return and he talked about it in terms of readiness. Are we ready for the return of the son of God? Romans 13 verse 11, you know, the time that the hour has come for you and me to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Our full and final salvation is right around the corner. So in the meantime, let's live as people of hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us of your unchanging love thank you for reminding us of the radical nature of conversion thank you for reminding us that jesus is coming soon to take us home god if there's anybody here today who is questioning their salvation god may they cry out oh jesus have mercy and may they put their hope in christ's finished work alone And then, God, remind the rest of us that as we continue to do that, as we continue to hope in Christ, supernatural power is activated on our behalf from on high, and we will continue to experience supernatural transformation. And then, God, for those who are really suffering among us, God, I I hope nothing sounded cold. In a very deep and profound way, speak to their hearts that this really isn't our home. But home is coming just down the pike. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you more and help us to love the nations, the poor, the sick, the hurting, and help us love one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand here, the benediction, the promise of God's love and favor upon our lives in Christ until he comes to bring us home. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our Abba Father, and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always.